You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like and you can fucking pick someone else to help you and you can bring your fucking dinner. Oh, a magnificent goal from Darren Huckabee! Now, you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? I'm Chris Gold. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And sat there in Peggy Arfisad's jogging bottoms, it's Michael Mod. <laughs> Hello. Uh, how are you both? Good. Good. 90s o'clock news? Let's go. From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10. Chris Scull. Barry Fry predicts Super League. Ooh. And how Steve Frogger met his wife. Brackets if we've got time. Okay, yeah. Um, thank you so much to Fred Garrett Stanley, aged 23 and a quarter. Oh, young. That's young, isn't it? That's young. Born um, in the 90s. Who uh, has recently read Barry Fry's 2000 autobiography. Do you know what Barry Fry's autobiography is called from 2000? No, but I can't wait. It will contain the word Fry. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a pun on Fry. And if it's not, it's a shame. It is Big Fry. Big Fry. Okay, yeah, I'll have that. I'll have that. I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll buy that. Can I read you a little bit from his autobiography? This is 2000, so really prescient. Um, as Fred rightly points out, he says, this is the quote from the book, now the Premiership is making moves towards just 16 or 18 clubs and the same noises that it cannot happen are being made, but it will. There will never be a Super League with fixtures on Mars, say some, but there will. The top five or six clubs will go their own way as they did from, fo- from the Football League a few years ago. It's greed, 
It is big bucks. It is business. It is no longer a sport. What worries me as well is that in time gone recently by, the man in the street was the support, the mainstay, the backbone of all the clubs. The only thing that ever kept them going in mundane and backbreaking jobs was the prospect of spending their Saturday afternoons at their local grounds. And this vital and enjoyable aspect of their lives has been taken away from them. Stolen. Joe Public has been priced out and not got a cat in hell's chance as the emphasis has switched to business and corporate indulgence. Barry Fry, really eloquent. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's predicted it all, hasn't he? Fair play to him. I think the thing about Barry Fry is he's a much sharper person than his reputation would. Do you know what I mean? You don't achieve what Barry Fry has achieved. Like, he's still in the game and still doing well. You don't do that without being good and without being sharp and clever. That, that yeah. persona is definitely there to kind of disarm people. Um, 100%. Sort of the, the sly fox that's running things behind the scenes. I'd happily see Barry Fry and Florentino Perez debate uh, the future of football. <laughs> uh, what, how did Steve Frogger meet his wife, Chris? Uh, we've spent so long on Barry Fry's autobiography that the clock's out. We've oh. got 30 seconds. It's not long enough to tell the yarn. Oh, Frog at well. meeting his wife. Next, well, I next guess we're going to have to do that next week. Okay, well, that is good because it does allow us time for the electronic postbag. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic postbag. You've got mail. Do you remember when we discussed whether the Hereford Bull was a thing? The bull yes. that Food the cop on brought pitch. onto the pitch. So, um, hello all, this is from Brian Lancaster, 48 and three quarters. I clearly remember an end-of-season game at Edgar Street following my beloved Cheltenham Town where the high point of half-time entertainment was a lottery draw conducted by the Hereford Bull. The pitch was divided into squares, each with their own numbers. Hereford fans then had been buying numbered squares the previous few weeks with decent cash prize for the winning number. The Hereford Bull was then led across the pitch in a supposedly random fashion until it produced the goods in one of the lottery bingo squares. The square in which it shat won the cash prize. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Shut up! This must have been at some point between 1999 and 2003, I think. So just about qualifying for Quickly Kevin Reminiscence. That's a lot of pressure on the ball. Yeah. Like, how can you guarantee yeah, that's that what I was it's going to do it? Half time is 15 minutes. By the time you've marked up the pitch... Unless the pitch was pre-marked and they just thought, we'll play, like, you know, like when they play a game, you can still see the American football markings on <laughs> at Wembley or whatever. They're playing on a roulette table. <laughs> if you pick at any 15-minute window, you can't guarantee me that a ball is going to crap in that window. <laughs> You've always said it. This is, <laughs> this is the debate it took eight series to have. Well, because does anyone else remember this? Because he has said, do I remember this right? But he is very confident it did happen. But we do need someone else who remembered that, surely. I'd love to know if there are any farmers or, you know, people that own bulls. Like, how, how precise is the, the window for a bull? Yeah. Are they like, you know how some people, some dads take pride in the fact that, like, oh, I'm regular as clockwork, me, up in the morning, have my coffee, 11 o'clock, have a shit. Like, the bulls yeah. keep the similar sort of routine where you just know, if I feed them at this time, then by the time the food goes through yeah. the system, he will is be that shitting how he got the gig? <laughs> is that how he got the gig? Um, now, Michael. Um, hang on. Before we move on, my brother-in-law's a farmer. He has balls in his field. I'm going to text him now. So what's the question? 
could you make a ball shit in a 15 minute window yeah and what and what would be required to do that any given 15 minute window <laughs> it, ps it's for quickly and they said we'd run out of content <laughs> now we discussed if you could change one result from the 90s um after listening to episode 1 season 8 and michael scoffing at the suggestion newcastle were rivals with manchester united in the 90s you asked for one result I would change. Newcastle nil, Manchester United won, 4th of March, 1996. Do you remember this game, Michael? I do, yes. Let me take you back to March 1996. The famous lead had been cut from 12 to 7. Had Newcastle won, the gap would have stretched to 10 with a game in hand. What occurred can only be described as daylight robbery. Newcastle absolutely battered Manchester United. Peter Schmeichel morphing into some kind of Stretch Armstrong producing worldy save after worldy save. When he was not, beaten, no, 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 no. he was not, saved not by the woodwork. Not, not morphing. That's just how good he was every week, week in, week out. He pulled off a rare good performance. <laughs> Should we have got a victory we deserved, we surely would have cantered to the title, changed the course of history. No, we would love it outburst. No Keegan leaving. No Dalglish decimating us by replacing Janola and Ferdinand with Des Hamilton. A hundred-year-old Ian Rush and Paul Dalgleish. Surely, this sliding doors moment, which stopped us from certain treble in 1999, European domination for decades, and the invitations of the founding members of the European Super League. Thoughts, Michael? I mean, to be fair, that's a really good one. That probably is a game, a single game that could have changed the course of not only that club's history, but arguably ours and. The Premier League. Yeah, I, I'd accept that. That's, that's a fair. That's fair. That's a great answer, to be fair, yeah. Well, I think Keegan was an edgy enough character that he would have left in some way pretty soon anyway. Yeah, I think I think Keegan still leaves. And there's an argument that Keegan still implodes because it's not the first and last time that it's happened and he's walked away from a job at club yeah. and international level. But I think if we don't beat them in that game, they, they do win the title. Yes. So Keegan would have still taken over from Glenn Hoddle. Like, he'd have been just as likely to take over from Glenn Hoddle had he won the league. He'd have been more... So he wouldn't have been at Newcastle forever. He wouldn't have built a dynasty. No. Did, did you guys ever answer that question about the one result that you'd change? Yeah. Uh, the Champions League final, 1999. Oh, <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> what would you change, Chris? Is it just from the 90s? And yeah. it can't be either the England semi-finals? Yeah, I don't think it can be... You were the Germany games. What would happen if I changed England v Holland in 1993? What's the that butterfly effect of that? That was my pick. That's my pick. That was... Wow. I was just thinking of that. But then would you just go for another group... Or just pick another group game? Just beat Poland? I think because you need to change the mindset. You, like What you do to not just English football, but to say to Graham Taylor and that team with that fixture, I think changes things far more than beating Poland or beating another group game so we'd have beaten holland and then we'd have gone on to beat san marino so we'd have made it then to the world cup i think it's actually potentially quite damaging because you might end up with graham taylor being the manager for euro 96 <laughs> oh yeah that's interesting here's here's a good yeah this is a good question say england got to the world cup 94 and they won a couple of games like a couple of group games and lost the game immediately after yeah. you've got graham taylor for euro 96 do you think if England went out in the second round of the World Cup, he'd have maintained his job? 
Unless he didn't want to carry on, which I don't think he would have. I think 100%. Because the thing about England management is like, it's a pretty low bar. As long as you qualify for the tournament and kind of get out the group stage and don't put on a bit of a show, you're guaranteed for another couple of years. Put on a bit of a show. <laughs> <laughs> like, like Roy Hodgson didn't. Yes. Yes. Fair enough. One of the reasons I'd want it is because USA 94 was such a great World Cup. The only thing missing was England. I think at that age, those sort of formative teen years, experiencing that summer and that World Cup with England on top, I think would have been really, really great. And we'd be talking about that summer with the same sort of reverence as we do Italian 90 and Euro 96. Really? Yeah, I think we would have done well. Okay, here's my pick for the game I would change. Poland versus Holland, the 17th of November 1993. This is the same. This is the same night we're playing San Marino and win seven one. Oh, that's fun. If you swap that result, so Poland win three one, then it fi- then the group looks like this: Norway win the group on sixteen points. Never. Then it's England on thirteen points. Netherlands finish in third place, where we finish on twelve points, and then you've got Poland in eleven points in fourth. So if you swap that result, that sliding doors moment, England are in the World Cup. That's your answer. Drops Mike. What, what, but why do, why, why do you want that? Ah, it's just a bit more interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I don't know. But that feels like something. There's a little twist of fate there. Because I, I don't think changing England beating Argentina in 1998 would have made a huge amount of difference. I think we'd probably have just lost to Holland in the next game. You never know, though, do you? You anyway, never know They're in a World Cup. Do, do send in your games that you like to have changed and what you think the butterfly effect would have been. They don't always have to be international. Okay, couple more emails. Do I remember this right? From Tom Gribbin. Do I remember this right? 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 Right. Need your help in validating a memory of my first ever QPR game in the early 90s. Slightly concerned, my excessive substance abuse during my time at university has led to me believing this. 18th of September 1993, QPR v Norwich. Dad takes me to my first QPR game at Loftus Road. Rangers top London club season before. 2-2, Celeste and Trevor Sinclair score blinders. My love affair with the Super Hoops begins. Aside from the game, my enduring memory is at half-time going to a small Chinese takeaway in the South Africa Road stand and being bought a bag of prawn crackers and some spring rolls. If it's not bizarre enough, all the staff were wearing very non-PC conical straw hats. <laughs> How did the club decide this was a match day revenue maker? Some years later at university, I remember sharing this with a Liverpool sporting mate who countered saying that there was a full McDonald's at Anfield that you could visit during the game. Surely not. Can somewhere out there, someone out there validate these claims? Tom Gribbin, 38. I'm not presuming either of you can validate these claims, but could <laughs> no. either of you come up with any thoughts on what do you... I mean, I mean, you have to assume that they've just leased out their premises to sort of, you know, another business to run. And that business has made the questionable choice of having their staff members dressed like Mickey Rooney from yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> yes, of course. Um... Okay, supplementary question. You're given the refreshment stand yes. in a in a football ground and you need to make as much... It's like an apprentice-style task, okay? Yeah. So you're each given 
the refreshment stand and you've got to theme it and you've got to prepare the food. What what are you going for? Chris first. Can I, can I just say, when when Spurs had that new stadium and Wembley launched, they're like, and, and same with the Emirates as well, you're like, you can you can go have a deep pan pizza, you can try a pale ale. No one ever says about a football stadium, God, you've got to try the food. No. Never. No. Like it's not you're not going there for the food. Give me I, like a I actually think the food van. used to be more interest. I'm sure the food used to be more all over the shop and it feels a bit standardized now. Do you know what I mean? Ground to ground. It used to be yeah. that people would go, Do you know what? They do a great pie at Shrewsbury Town. <laughs> but you never hear that anymore. I'm gonna say it. The food is too good everywhere. There's, there's no element of danger anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you go for? I would... Ah, oh, this is such a good question. Because oh, I remember West Ham had a period where they had, they made chicken burgers, like KFC-style chicken burgers. That was... I really looked forward to at half-time when I was a kid. Yeah. But I don't... like. I'm not going to say that because it was just stupid and wrong, really. But you, you need to also chicken. theme your restaurant around a kind of cuisine. Oh, you've got to go pies, haven't you? I'm just going to answer... You can't go pies. That's not an acceptable option, Chris. That's what they said already. <laughs> yeah, but... I'm, what that, I, that is not... Look, if it's look, my name above the door, I don't want to stick out. You're at football. Have a pie. Well, maybe we absolutely. can do something special with a pie. No, I'm saying you've got to do something different, Michael. I have to do something different. Yeah, they've got pies. They've got pies. Uh, you can have some more thinking time, Skull, and I'll I'll pitch my I'll pitch my uh, match day restaurant. It's a play on dim sum, but it's called yeah. It's called skin sum. Okay, skin sum. Skin yeah. sum. Okay. Yeah. What it is is I've taken the skin from KFC chicken, which is the best bit. Oh my god, this is and disgusting! I've, I've really. turned them into little parcels of sort of like dim sum style, like wontons and gyozas, and you can fill them, bespoke fill them with a sort of flavour or a ingredient combo that suits <laughs> both the club, the home club. So, for instance, say it's uh, Manchester United, it would be red themed so perhaps there's some chorizo in there uh yeah perhaps a little bit of mashed potato so and then whoever the opposing team is that fixture you then have the themed second third or fourth dishes which are sort of based on them but the main thing is you're getting tiny little delicious parcels of kfc chicken skin filled with different fillings it's snackable it's like tapas it's hand food it's not it's not getting everywhere it's like fast food canapes skin some See you at Old Trafford next wow. year. Wow, that's that's a, it's big. That's a great, huge idea. Just, just imagine your day working at Skin Sum in a football stadium. You're up at nine, waiting for KFC to open. You're in there buying all the burgers, <laughs> then it's back to Skin Sum before the stadium is to, to rip all the skin off yeah, the chicken. Just yeah, there's a lot of chicken. excess chicken. There's a lot of excess the chicken. Cost of each one is the, the overheads are insane. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking for each bit of skin sum you're looking at eight quid <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm appealing to the new, new generation of corporate football fans okay? yeah, yeah, they're expense accounting this the, 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 the man of the people salt of the earth they're not going to the game anymore sushi's no, dead exactly. sushi's dead it's all about skin sum <laughs> and Skull's going pie. do you know what Skull I think pies isn't as bad an idea yeah. as I've heard 
Can I just say, what a dystopian future with Florentino Perez running the game and Michael fucking dishing out the cuisine. You're turning up for a 20-minute game of football because no one's got the attention span. And then you're walking past buckets of unused chicken to get some red-coloured skin soap. And then you're home. It's all You're all done in 45 minutes and it's cost you 500 quid. <laughs> what a world. What a world. Give me a pie and a really boring League One game. If you've got anything you want to send us, but ideally not on that. But if you've got anything you want to send us. Yeah. If any of the dragons are listening in, 100 grand, 20%. Just hit me up. This is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. So, today's guest... Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a second. Just so. I texted my brother-in-law about... So, my question was, can you make a bullshit in any 15-minute window, and how would you do it? This is my brother-in-law, Johnny, says, I'm sorry to disappoint, but there's I'm not aware of any techniques to make a cow shit on demand. However... There are techniques to make them ejaculate within a 15-minute window. Let me know if that's any help. Oh, well, wow. have we? Did we misread the email? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is he actually wanking off a ball? Rebecca <laughs> <laughs> loses back in football. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. That is, a, that is phenomenal. Yeah. Okay. Wow, it's simple, isn't it? You get people on... Sometimes you have to say, you know, this person, they played six England caps, blah, 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 blah. You don't need to do that. This is Harry Redknapp. Today's guest is a titan of English football management. He climbed the football pyramid with Bournemouth from the fourth to the second tier before cementing his credentials at West Ham as one of the foremost top English managers in the Premier League. For me... As a West Ham fan, the pound for pound greatest manager of the 90s. It's my honour to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Harry Redknapp. Good morning, guys. How are you doing, Harry? I'm good. Yeah, all good. Thank you. You've managed or been an, at least been an assistant manager for, for football teams throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, 2010s. That's five decades of experience. We're going to talk about the 90s primarily. Are we right in thinking the 90s was the best decade for football? Well, it certainly was in some incredible players around in that period, you know, and before, really, you know. But um, but the nineties was a was a, was a great time, yeah, for sure. Do you look back on your time like if I was to say my, def- I mean, I suppose you had a great period at Spurs, but for me, Harry Redknapp, it's because it was when I was growing up. You will always be the manager of West Ham in the nineties for me. That's how I will always remember you. Yeah, I mean to go back to West Ham and manage the club somewhere where you know I'd left school at fourteen. Signing for West Ham, you know, getting on the bus out the East End of London every morning to go train at Chapel Heath with, and be around, you know, so many fantastic footballers. It was just, you know, Bobby was there, obviously. He was a young captain. Uh, we just, everybody at the club came through the youth team, the whole mm. group of us, you know, and we were all pals, we were all mates. And my first year at the club, we won the FA Youth Cup. You know, we're playing in front of crowds of 25, 28,000 people. And, you know, and Ron Greenwood, the manager, did something that people would, you know, find hard to, to understand. Now, he actually, we played in the semi-final of the Youth Cup and he travelled with the 
youth team that day and didn't go with the first team. He came oh, with wow. the youth team to watch the youth team play. He had, he knew the first that, you know, we had a, a good group of young players. Johnny Johnny Sissons played in that team. You know, went on to play in the cup final at 17. Uh, and he travelled with a youth team. And that was that was the interest he had in the kids. He was at every youth game. There wasn't a youth game that he didn't attend. If he, if he wasn't with the first team, he would always be on the touchline watching the kids play. And he, and he was a fantastic football coach. And really, I took that into management. I used to attend every youth game. I always followed the kids. And that's when I was lucky and had the, them, that great group of kids come through at the same time, all six of them. You know, it was amazing yeah. times. Winding the clock back a bit, you actually started management um, at Seattle Sounders, 1976. You were a player, assistant manager. In your second season, you got to the final of the Soccer Bowl, came up against Pele and his New York yeah. Cosmos. Yeah, I went out to America with Jeff, Jeff Hurst. We travelled out together. Uh, and our first game was, uh, we played New York Cosmos. We opened the stadium that day in Seattle, that, that week. We'd been out about three days. And it was sold out, 66,000 people oh, wow. all see at the stadium. It was indoors, the Kingdom. Uh, and Pele played, uh, Carlos Alberto. Uh, and everybody was going to America at that time. Beckham yeah. Bauer was out there. Cruyff was out there. Uh, Gert Muller, the German centre forward. It, it just everybody, all that Dutch team all went out. Niskins, Rensenbrink. Uh, the, the whole group of them um, and, and the Brazilians were all out there as I say Carlos Alberto captain Brazil the right back I mean what an incredible player he was he, he was out there everybody went to America it was just suddenly the place to go and it was a great time so every game you were coming up playing against always George Best was there you know but I was out there with Bobby and uh, and Jeff Hurst which was fantastic you know we, we all lived in the apartments and uh, just had a great time. Did you? Did they know much about football over there? Were they interested? Yeah, well, we had good crowds. I think we averaged about 24,000 people um, and they loved it, yeah. They didn't really know, I'll be truthful, you know, we, they couldn't really... Certain things excited them, you know, they'd get excited by somebody dribbling and, you know, doing something... Um, that they, you know, anyone who just could play and if you passed the ball, maybe didn't give the ball away for 90 minutes, they probably wouldn't appreciate it. But yeah. if you run... They weren't Claude McAlealy fans. Yeah, yeah. If you beat three men and, or four men and fell over the ball, or whatever, they, they think you were wonderful. They'll be... <laughs> you know? but, uh, to... It was great, though. It was a great time. I went to a game when I was over there in about 2005 New New England, I think, are managed by Steve Nichol. And yeah. the biggest cheer of the whole whole match was someone did an overhead kick to keep the ball in on the touchline. Oh. And they wow. absolutely <laughs> mad for it. Yeah. <laughs> Won't leave what was going way on. To go, way to go, way to go, yeah. <laughs> they loved it, though. But, um, and then we'd go off on road trips. We'd go off and play, maybe we'd go to Florida. So we'd play Miami, Tampa Bay Rowdies and... Um, whoever else was down there at the time, you know. Um, and it was amazing. We'd be away like for 12, 13 days on, and go on a road trip and we'd stay in Florida and Miami. Yeah, it was uh, oh, it was wow. amazing. So, and we had a great time. I mean, it was so, it was nearly all English or Scottish players in the team. We had a, obviously had a few American boys, you know. But uh, no, it was a fantastic experience. 
It, it sounds amazing, but what's amazing as well is you swapped all those bright lights of Seattle to be Bobby Moore's assistant at Oxford City. Well, well, how, did, what how did that happen? Well, I was with... I love Bobby. I just love being with Bob. I hardly gone anywhere to be with Moore. He was... <laughs> I'm there, I, I could cry talking about him. That's how... Yeah. That's how he... That's what he meant to me. He was just such a great fella. And uh, Moro, Bobby played at Seattle with me and he said to me at the time, we, you know, we used to go out for dinner with the wives and the kids and, we'd go, you know, we spent all the time, we'd go training, the girls would go down the lake, all the wives and get the barbecue and we'd come back and uh, we spent so much time. And he said to me, if ever I got a job, Harry, so I'd love you to come with me as my, my coach, you know. And I was coaching at the time and I think he, he, he liked what I could do. Uh, and then he came back home and uh, he, rang, he rang me up. He said, Harry, I took over at Oxford. I said, all right. He said, will you come, fancy coming with me, you know? And uh, I'd moved from Seattle. Uh, we got an offer to go to Phoenix, Arizona, me and Jimmy Gabriel. Jimmy played at Everett. Jimmy played at Scotland, great player. And again, great mate of mine. And Jimmy suddenly got, I'd come home, me and Sandra and the kids. We used to have six months in America and six months here. And they paid, but they paid me all the year round. And um, he said, I've been offered a job in Phoenix, Arizona. So we would have, he said, it's, I said, Jimmy, what, why are we leaving Seattle? I like, you know, it's, he said, listen, Harry, this is incredible chance. They're going to build, build this new team. A bit like Beckham's talking about, you know, what he's done in Miami, that type mm. of, that was the talk. Uh, they offered me crazy money, five-year contract. And so we said, yeah, okay. Anyway, we got out there and the first payday came and all the checks bounced. The guy who had put the team together, oh, no. a guy called Len Lesser, he, he was a con man and he got into the, he, he con six, I think there was about six owners all put millions in and then he stole all their money. Oh, wow. We were part of the con. So he'd gone to them, he'd gone to wow. them and said, look, I can get, I can get you Jimmy Gabriel and Harry Redknapp from the Sounders who were in the, we were in the, you know, we'd had a great couple of years, got to the final, played the Cosmos, he said, I can get these guys. And we were just, yeah. And what? so whatever money, he dreamt up stupid money. And like he's offering us these stupid wages. And he sent me like, what car would Sandra like, Harry? A Ford Mustang convertible, would that be okay? I'm going, yeah, Sandra can't even drive, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll stick it on the drive, it'd be all right, you know? And uh, that was how it was. It was crazy. And so we we, we decided, me and Jimmy, we got go to Phoenix. But as I say, within a month, I signed five or six players, took some lads over from England, who, what we did, we were going to be in, in the division, it was the ASL, it was like a second division almost. Uh, we were going to have one year in there to, to get sorted out the teething troubles, and then we were going to go into the, we didn't have to get promoted, it was just in, you know, how the American uh, system works. You just buy a club and they, they go into the top league, like Beckham buys Miami, and they're straight into the league. They don't have to come through feeder leagues or lower divisions. So we go out there, as I say, and I signed five or six, seven players from England. They're all pleased. I, I took a load of mates of mine, really. They were all mates. They were footballers, but they were mates, you know. I'm ringing up a boy that was at Darlington called Neil Haig. And Haig, I loved Haig. He played with me at Bournemouth. So I'm ringing him up. He's playing for Darlington, right? <laughs> and I'm Aggie, and he loved it. He loved the sun. He loved the life, Aggie. And his missus was a lovely girl. She was school teacher. She, Aggie, do you fancy coming to America? Uh, Phoenix, Harry, you're taking. Don't take piss, Harry. He's saying to me, <laughs> "You're having a wind up, Harry." <laughs> really? I went, "Come on, Aggie. I promise you, a three-year contract. Coming to America to play 
oh, anyway, they all love me. I've got them all, take, we'll get on the plane. They all, all like, they all say, good old Harry. Like, they all like, <laughs> we get out there, the payday comes and all the checks bounce. None of us had any money. We all got thrown out the hotel and they all came home and uh, suddenly I get a phone call from Bobby. Would I come back to, uh, he took over at Oxford. Would I come to Oxford with him? I thought he meant Oxford United in division. I think they were in the championship. It was Oxford City in the Ishmael League. <laughs> Isn't it mad that Bobby Moore couldn't get a bigger job at that point? Like, yeah. he's he's like, he's the greatest captain yeah. in the history of the English game. Yeah. You thought he'd come in a bit higher, right, as a man? Absolutely. It was, it was crazy, really, that Bobby, you know, he knew so, he had such knowledge of the game as well, and he was a fantastic presence. He was just an amazing guy. And to start like that was, you know... I've always said, listen, it's like anything. He could have gone to West Ham. He may have been West Ham's greatest ever manager, but he never got the opportunity. He ends up going there. I ended up getting him. I came back. The, I went to Oxford with him for a year, and then I came to Bournemouth. Um, and with the, the club at Bournemouth got bought by Anton Johnson. Anton had owned a few clubs. He was a guy from the South End area, a real character. He owned Rotherham. He bought Bournemouth, and then he was buying South End. And he said to me, I need a manager at South End. You got any ideas, Harry? You know, I was at Bournemouth managing. Uh, and I said, what about Bobby Moore? He said, well, fantastic idea. And he gave the job to Bobby. But he was only there a couple of months, Anton. And he sold the club on. Um, and when he sold the club, um, you know, someone else came in. Yeah. And uh, it's difficult. You're managing Division 4, you know, and yeah. you've got no money. So really, we never saw whether Bobby could have been a great manager yeah. or not. I'm sure he could have been. Yeah. What was it like at Oxford City? And that? What were the kind of facilities and stuff like at Oxford well, City? Well, it was centers? like I was, uh, I, I was getting £90 a week and uh, they give me a little green fiesta and I used to have to drive in every morning from Bournemouth. It was 98 miles exactly. <laughs> uh, and I think I was trying to beat the land speed record over, you know, every day, trying a new... Anyway, uh, <laughs> I blew the little fiesta up after about nine months. I think the engine blew up. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was it. I would get there early in the morning, like being at nine, sitting in a porter cabin all day, no players. I don't know what I was doing there, really. And, and Bobby would come in at night for training. We'd finish training about nine, half past nine. We'd have a chat, have a cup of tea, whatever. Pop in the White House next door. It was a pub next door that belonged to the owner as well, of the football club. Uh, and that was it. That was how the week was, really. So and then we'd play on Saturdays, you know, in the Ishmael League or Tuesday or Wednesday night, we'd have a midweek game. It was impossible. I mean, we didn't know the league. It was a league where, you know, Charlie Smith, who, who, who'd been playing in the league for 15 years, was now the manager, had been managing for 15, 16 years at wherever he was, Averley or some. And he, they knew all the players. There's certain, it's no yeah. leagues, and it? We didn't know the players. It was very difficult. Yeah. And then you... But it was great. Being with Bobby was always yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. You move then to Bournemouth. Now, I've got a question from a listener, Harry. This is from... Got this this morning. It's a question from Jamie from Bournemouth. And it says, why did you sell me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what had happened with Jamie? <laughs> Jamie came to Bournemouth. He... He, he was played with England schoolboys and he could have gone to, well, he signed for Tottenham actually, but every, he could have gone anywhere, any club. But to, we, he, he used to go train at Tottenham, he was about 11, 12, 13. And then when he was four, he used to come training with me in the school holidays, you know, down here, 
and then suddenly he was due to leave school in a, you know, a few months and we went up and met Terry Venables and we loved Terry and he was a big fan of Terry's as well. But Jamie said, and he used to come training me and he said, I'm getting you a team, Dad. You know, I want to play league football. If I got a top, I think he went and stayed in digs with a lad up there and the lad said, the boy was like 17, he said to him, you don't get a chance here, you know, they don't play the kids. Um, it's another schoolboy who was a school, very good player, schoolboy international. Uh, and he said, you, and Jamie thought, well, come here, I'll be in the youth team. How many kids break through in the big clubs? Uh, and he said, I'd rather come to, uh, to Bournemouth, Dad. I bet I can get in your team. I said, you can't, you sign forms to Tottenham. You can't, you've got to go there. Anyway, he didn't want, he said, no, I want to come to Bournemouth. I want to play, I can get in your team. Anyway, we had to have a meet with Terry Venables, went to meet Terry, who I got on great. I'd always had a great relationship with Terry, but we ended up having an almighty argument, you know, because he said he's the only kid we want to sign this year. And yeah, you're telling us you ain't coming, you're taking the liberty. And anyway, we sorted it in the end and um, he came to Bournemouth, but he was only here a little time, 16, he got in the first team. Uh, and Kenny came, um, Liverpool came along and Kenny rang me and said, uh, Harry, you know, uh, Ron Yates has seen your boy play against Birmingham on Saturday and, uh, you know, would you would you let him go? I said, no, he, 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 don't want to, he wants to play and he's not going to play at your club there, Kenny. He's at the moment, he's better off playing here, you know? So with that, um, Kenny said, well, can he come up for a week? Anyway, I said, well, he can come up for a couple of days if you want. You know, I said to Jamie, do you want to go up there, Jamie? Said, I'm happy playing here, don't want to play. I'm not going to get in the team at Liverpool. Anyway, I let him go for three or four days. Kenny rang me the first, up the first training session and said, like, you know, his words were, I'm not, he said to me, got any more at home like him? He said, I want him here. <laughs> he said, I want him, Harry. I've got to get, you know, we want him here anyway. And he said, look, he will be in, a, he'll be in and around the team, I promise you. So he was 17. So anyway, we let him go and he went there and he was on, I think it was on the bench first game. In them days, I think we only had two subs probably. Yeah. And Kenny, um, within about three weeks, Kenny had resigned. You know, they played them games against Everton and Kenny left. So he was it was he was in limbo and then Graham came in, Graham Soonis, and he was probably six, seven, eight months hanging around. He felt that Graham didn't really know he was even, you know, he had the first team or whatever. And then suddenly he stuck him in the team against all there uh, in a in a European Cup game. So yeah, that was how it happened. But yeah, I did sell him. I didn't get any dinner off of Sandra for about six months. <laughs> did, what was it like managing your son? Was it? It's a it difficult right thing it, with the other players it, and stuff. It was no problem with him because he not being was he's, he was only sixteen. He could play. I mean, mm. when he made his debut at West Ham, I, he wasn't playing. Uh, Sean Brooks was ill on the way to the game uh, and felt really ill. So I remember Paul Miller, who was the captain, played at Tottenham, Max. He came up and said, who are you going to play? I said, well, he said, why aren't you playing Jamie? He said, if he weren't your son, you'd play him. And I thought, yeah, I would have played him. But, I, you know, I, anyway, that, it, it, it wasn't difficult because the lads, like, I think they knew he, he could play, you know. Obviously, mm. it's a form of he could play. It wasn't, if he was useless not putting him in the team, it would have been different, wouldn't it, you know? Yeah. And you were like, with him you... as well, weren't you? Yeah, were you driving to training together and driving home from match days together? No, no, get the bus. I, mean, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> drive him about. Get on the bus. He was 16, get the bus. Yeah, get the bus in the mornings. But I used to drop him at school, you know, when I was managing, when he was when he was about 12, 13, 14, all through that period. We get outside the school gates, it's old. They kind of come training. We've got rubbish today, it's geography or history or something, you know. 
And I go, no, you've got to go to school, Jamie. And, oh, come on, Dad, let me come training. I, used to I swear, I used to take him training with me. He'd train, he'd be all morning playing football, kicking the ball around. And we'd go home at four o'clock. His mum thought he'd been to school all day. <laughs> she only discovered he hadn't been going to school when he left school, couldn't read or write. <laughs> <laughs> but also, so your son's a footballer, but also your nephew, obviously, Frank Lampard Jr., mm. similar age. So what yeah, were the garden, yeah. high quality of garden games? Yeah, 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 Frank, what a career Frank had. I mean, amazing, wasn't it, what he did? Absolutely incredible, you know, um, what a trainer. You know, when I took Frank, we signed him, I remember one or two people at the club saying to me, Harry, you know, he's never going to make it, he can't run, he can't get around the pitch, you know. I mean, he ended up being one of the best box-to-box -box players in the world. So, but he, what he did, he trained like no one I've ever seen. Every day after training, I swear... He would be out on that training ground on his own, bag of balls, shoot up to a cone, left foot, 20 yards, bang, right foot, bang, go and collect the balls, do his sprints. He'd be sprinting, put some spikes on, sprint 10 yards, twist and turn, go and he'd go home at night, run around the street. He just wanted to be a player so much. And it rubbed off on Rio and it rubbed off on the other boys who used to watch him. That little group, Defoe and um, Michael Carrick and Joe and all them, they all saw how Frank trained and it certainly had a big influence on them as well. Yeah. Is that rare, like, how much he wanted it? Did it really stand yeah. out? The only person, and I promise you, not because I was related to Frank or anything else, but was his dad. His dad, his dad well, you know, I can still remember, even to this day, being in the dressing room, and at West Ham, and Ron Greenwood came in, and Frank Lampard would have been 17, 18, and Ron Green, 17, I suppose, Ron Green was said to him, uh, uh, Frank, he said, I've just spoke to Ken, uh, John Bond and uh, Kenny Brown, who were West Ham legends in their time, were now playing at Torquay. I think Frank O'Farrell was the manager, another ex-West Ham player, went on to manage Man United. They had a massive West Ham connection down in Torquay. Tony Scott played there, who played at West Ham. And um, he said, they, they, they'll take you on, they want to take you on loan. He said, and if you do well, I think they might, they'd, they'd be interested in taking you. And Frank, I mean, Ron Greenwood, he was Mr. Greenwood. We called him Mr. Greenwood. That's how it was in them days. It was Mr. Greenwood. And Frank said, I'm not going to Torquay. What do I want to go to Torquay for? I want to play with West Ham. And we all stood like looking, <laughs> you know. You, and Frank went, what's wrong with me? Why, why can't I play? Why can't I play with West Ham? Do you, do you, you tell me what's wrong with me, and I'll, I'll work on it. Tell me. And Ron Green said, "Well, you know, you Frank, you're not quick enough. You know, you you lack a pace, and you know you." Frank said, "No, no, I'm not going to talk. I'll show you. I'll show. You. I'm not going. No, I'm going to. I'm going to get in West Ham's team. I swear to God, I can remember it now. Oh, and he used to come back every day after training, put his spikes on, and he'd do sprint 10, 15, little sharp ones." He'd go and jockey, turn and go 15-yard sprints every day, every day, an hour. He'd be out there on his own. He should say, get a ball, take me on, take me on, run. run. He'd get people running at him, taking him on, and tackling and chipping balls and practising. And that's what he did every single day. And the other kids went, oh, look at him. He's, you know, oh, he's trying to show what he wasn't. He just was so determined to be a footballer. Yeah. He'd had a hard life, Frank Senior, a hard life. I think he lost his dad very, very young and he was the most determined boy I'd ever met. And uh, young Frank, he obviously rubbed off on him as well. Yeah. That's yeah. where he got it from. They say that about Kevin Keegan as well, don't they? That Kevin Keegan yeah. wasn't actually that naturally 
talented in the grand scheme of things, but kind of his absolute will and willingness yeah. to work. His work rate to... was incredible, wasn't it, Keegan? But no, Frank was honestly, I swear, and I'm not just saying it, believe you me, I've never seen anyone could come anywhere near him for what he... I used to look out of my... I remember the first time well, I looked down my office and 200 yards, it was raining and getting dark. I swear to God, and I said to the groundsman, I said, someone's got a defence over there. There's some nuts over there, <laughs> right? He's running, this geezer's running up to a pole. Up. I said, someone's climbed over the fence at Chabaloo. And he went, that's, that's young Frank. I said, you're kidding. He said, no. I said, he's been over there for hours. He's nuts are running up and down. I, I wasn't going out of town. It was raining. He might have Give me a right hook anyway. And I said to the ground, I said, no, he said, it's young Frank. And that's what he did every day, every day. Never missed an hour, an hour, two hours, just on his own with a, with a bag of footballs, practicing in and out of cones, all sorts of stuff, just on his own. That wow. was how he was. Amazing. We yeah, can't we can't talk about um, young Frank Lampard without mentioning the viral clip of yourself. Uh, I think it's the roller bowl in Collier Row, West Ham yeah. season ticket Q and A night, and a fan says, "Why why are you get playing Frank Lampard as a Scott yeah. Canaman?" And you accurately predict the career of Frank Lampard when he's probably only eighteen at the time. But, yeah. So you were that yeah. convert. You knew. Yeah. Well, I could see. I mean, it was it, looking back on it. I, Scotty Cannon was a good player as well, and he was a good lad, and he was he was a good player, Scotty. And Matt Holland was there. I just got the ump because, you know, young Frank was at home. And what had happened, I think Trevor Sinclair was supposed to come that night and rung up at the last minute. Something had happened. He had to look after the kids. Or and, and suddenly I'm going to this, this fans forum and there was, I think, two of the players pulled out. You know, they didn't want to go, really. So I've ended up ringing Frank Senior. I said, Frank, can you get young Frank to come and sit? He ain't got to open his mouth. Just sit with me. Be there. I think Mark Reaper, the centre half, might have been there, the Danish boy as well, good lad. But uh, and so, but young Frank suddenly, from just minding his own business, has suddenly been given a bit of grief, and I got the ump with it really, you know. And I, I did buy it a little bit, but that's how I saw him. Yeah, I had no doubts that someone so determined as he was, he he couldn't fail. I could see his dad, that training, that determination to just to be a player. And I thought, well, his that's what his dad did. His dad went on and played for 20 years for West Ham and still put his spikes on three or four times a week, did his spikes, put his spikes on. Do you know, it was funny. We went, Frank Senior, we played, We had a game at, um, at Tottenham one day. I know I'm jumping forward. We had a game at Tottenham, a reserve game. We played Birmingham City. And Frank Senior, who wasn't involved in football anymore, nothing to do with that. He said, Harry, he said, uh, you've got reserve, you've got a game at your training ground. He said, I'll have to drive over. His offices were around the corner in Chigwell somewhere. I said, yeah, come over, have a cup of tea, Frank. Anyway, we watched the game. Harry Kane played up front against Birmingham in a reserve game. After the game, Frank's walk, come walking off with me. He went, I like him, centre forward. He said, he's got something, Harry. I said, I know he has, hasn't he? I said, he's got something. He definitely, uh, he said, he could just do another yard of pace. He said, he's sharp, bit sharper. He said, he's got a real, real chance in. I said, yeah, I'd, yeah. Anyway, he said, do you want to have a chat with him? I said, no. So we're walking off. He, he walks across to Harry, who's walking off. He said, Harry, he said, well done. He said, I like you. He said, get yourself a pair of spikes, he said, and do your, every day, just 10, 15 minutes, do a few, do your sprints. Anyway, he said, you'll get sharper. He'll get, put a yard on you. Next day, Harry came in and got him the kit man to get him a pair of spikes and started doing his sprints. Wow. 
Yeah. It, you know, you can tell kids, but a lot of them, it goes in one ear yeah. and out the other. Yeah. But it, I promise you, it can make you quick. Any young kid who's short of a yard of pace, get yourself a pair of running spikes. You ain't running long distances. You're running 10 yards. You run yeah. to a cone, jockey, you know, as though you're jockeying, turn and go, 10 yards, little sharp ones, maybe 15 yards over little distances. And you'll get quicker, you'll get sharper. Fantastic. I saw Frank, both the Franks do that, you know, and I saw Harry Kane do it. You wouldn't think it was possible to get quicker. Do you know what I mean? In that Honestly, sense, that I think... know, I know what you were saying. But you know, it, it just it just Frank got yards. Frank Senior couldn't run. He couldn't run. He would it was like running through quicksand. He could play, clip a ball. He had this great determination. He was a fantastic sport. He was a port he come from Canning Town, played for England at cricket. Uh, but wasn't a schoolboy football. So he played with West Ham boys, but he didn't play at England schools. We, in fact, we signed two fullbacks that year, Frank Lampard and Bob Glozier. And Bob kept in England schoolboys and didn't really break. Bob was a good lad, but didn't break through into the first team at West Ham. And Frank, who just played for the district, ended up going on to play for 20 years. He had that. He just, yeah. he was so determined to be a player. It was incredible. Well, let, let's talk about another type of player because you, you then go you from Bournemouth. You come to West Ham as assistant manager uh, and secure promotion first season at the first attempt. One of the key players was Julian Dix, who's a kind of he may, is he your favourite player? Scully's certainly up there, isn't he? He's one of my favourite players, but I imagine he was a handful to manage. A handful, a handful. <laughs> How a do you handful. even? Because he seemed to have so much power in the dressing room and the fans loved him so much, he, but he was his own man. He was his own man and he was very powerful in the dressing room, for sure. I think the other players were all scared of him. Um, <laughs> he, uh, were you scared of him? No, he was difficult. Not, no, not in a violent way, but he, you know, he did have this attitude about him at the time. You know, if you said, look, we're wearing suits tomorrow for the game, we'd say, why can't we wear track suits, you know? And... And he had a, he, the, the lads followed him a bit. He had a little group, you know, if you were warming up, he'd be 100 yards behind. And But when it come to playing on Saturday, he was fantastic, you know. But I felt, we, I'd be truthful now, looking back on it, he was too powerful in the dressing room. Uh, and, you know, it was like the other lads done what Dixie would say rather than what you were saying or whatever. Um, and I was assistant manager and I went to watch Liverpool play on the Sunday, Jamie was playing for Liverpool, so I had to ride up to watch Liverpool. As I'm coming out the ground, up ground soon as the manager's come out, he's just going to do the press. And he said to me, um, you're struggling, Harry, aren't you? Um, I said, yeah, we are. We had a bad start. We're stumping. We'd lost the first five games or something, whatever. Four games. Anyway, he said, uh, I said, yeah, we're going to have to sell our best player, get some couple, we need two or three, four players in, you know. He said, who's your best player? I said, Julian Dix, the left back. Graham said to me, but the little fat geezer. <laughs> I went, right, it's gospel true. I'm telling you exactly how it went. He, I went, no, he's not fat. He went, well, he looks it. I went, no, no, he's strong, he's powerful. I said, he's a fantastic player, Graham, great left foot. He said, I need a left back. He said, is he that good? I said, yeah, he is. I said, he's top draw. Should be, in, he could play England. It won't be a better, you know, Stuart Pearce is the best left back in the world, I think, at the time. I said, but Dixie's a fantastic player. Oh, so I'll come and watch him. Uh, sorry, that was a Saturday. We were playing on a Sunday, beg your pardon. That was a Saturday. 
He said, you're playing tomorrow? And I said, yes, I'll come to the game. Anyway, he came to the game. We played Coventry, I think it was. We're winning 1-0 after about, just before right half time, Dix is running with a ball and a little boy Flynn's tugging him. And Dix's first reaction, if you pulled his arm, was to smash you in the gob with an elbow, right? He didn't care who you was. It could be in training, could be the manager, could be a... And he's gone, bosh, he's laid this fella out cold. Right, ran off with the ball. Anyway, the crowd in them days, there was no cameras. No one saw it. So the linesman ain't seen it. The ref ain't seen it. The only one, the only, the only thing we know that is something's happened is because Flynn's nose is halfway across his face with all blood pouring out. The referee's going over to the linesman. What happened? Ain't got a clue, probably. Ain't got a clue, right? They ain't seen it. The crowd ain't seen it. Not if they're all going mad. They give him a yellow card. He don't know why he's, he's obviously, he can't get him already. He ain't seen it. He, something's happened. He don't know if it was accidental. Anyway. So, uh, anyway, when I see Graham gets in touch, he's, he said, I love that. When he gives it, Graham said, I liked him. All right, he said, I'm going to come next week. You've got Swindon next week. He said, I loved it when he gave the geezer the elbow in the top. <laughs> Said, I did. like that. He said, I need a bit of that here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was good, wasn't it, Graham? I didn't tell him we had murders at half time and, like, you know, he, he, he said he could have cost us the game or whatever, getting sent off and asked you. Anyway, following week he came, we played Swindon, he played quite well, did all right. Not his best game, but still, he was a good player, you know. Anyway, he came back in on the Monday and said, Look, I'll take him. Um, I'll give you uh, I'll give you Marshall and David, David Burrows. David Burrows was a good player. Mike yeah. Marsh was a good player. Two fantastic players. I'll give you them two. And I said, well, give us 200 grand, uh, 200 grand as well because we wanted to sign Lee Chapman. We had no money to buy a striker. So suddenly we got three players in for the, for Dixie. Uh, um, and Dixie went and them three come in. Our first game was Blackburn away without Dixie. The crowd who turned up were ready to give us some grief because they loved Dixie, obviously. He was a good player. Uh, we went to Blackburn, who were, I mean, they were champions, reigning champions or whatever, or they'd been up there, sorry, they had a, Jack Walker was here, they had a real good team. Um, and we went there, I think we won 2-0. So, and then we came home, won in the midweek in the League Cup, and we was up and right. we was, yeah, Dixie had gone, the new lads come in and and we did okay. Didn't miss that elbow, yeah. that elbow was the best thing that could have happened to West Ham. <laughs> and, yeah. At the time, yeah, he loved the elbow, Graham. He loved it. He said, he me. I said, he'll elbow, I said, he'll boot lumps out of you in training, Graham, as well. He went, I love some of that, Graham. But no, Dixie, Dixie could play at a left foot like a magic wand. I mean, he should have played for England, shouldn't he? I mean, he was, as I say, the only trouble was at the time we had. We did have Stuart Pearce, who was an incredible player, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of tricky characters, Joey Beecham, that was a sign in the following year. Came yeah. in, I mean, great player, Harry, like when you signed him. Well, that was an amazing one because, uh, yeah, we signed Joey Beecham and what ability he had. My God, he could play. First day he's come in the training ground. True story, he's come in the training ground. I'll, I'm there. Joey, good morning. How you doing, Joe? He's like, he's got his head down like this. He said, I should have gone to Swindon. <laughs> I went, no, no. I said, when you got, no, no. What, on the M4? I said, no, dear, that's the opposite direction. <laughs> I swear, I swear. He went, no, I should have gone to Swindon. I said, what do you mean, Swindon's that way? I said, M4, London, you, this way. No, 
He said, I should have signed for Swindon. I said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Is this too far? I said, what do you mean it's too far? You should have gone to Swindon. I said, Swindon's in the... Swindon and Swindon. I said, this is West Ham. There's no comparison. You're talking about... Hey, what, what? And that was it. He just sulked all day. Oh, man. He was head down. You couldn't get him to run. You couldn't get him to play. Wow. You couldn't... He just... He was in tears. He wanted to go. He didn't want to be here. Oh, my word. And he just didn't want to play here. Man, so it was unreal. Just... It was unreal from day one. That was how it was. He just yeah. said, I made a mistake. I didn't want to... In the end, we had to sell him to Swindon. He went to Swindon. <laughs> that is yeah. mad situation. It was, mate. Had you, like... Had really he come weird. to see you to sign and stuff? Oh, sorry. It, talking to Joey at the time was like talking to, like, a, a, a four-year-old who won't do what you're telling him. And you're saying, come on... And he's just, he's like that, looking, and he just wouldn't, you know, he just wouldn't accept that he was there and he's got to play and get on with it. And he was, a, he just didn't want to, didn't want to play there. Oh. He didn't want to be there. Hated yeah. it, just didn't want to, the other lads, he didn't talk to them, didn't mix with anyone. I think he, he had a girlfriend who he just met and he just didn't want to, he didn't want to be away. I don't know. It was strange. Wow. Yeah, there's a room, an urban legend that Andre Chevchenko came down for a trial. Is that true? I'm st- uh, well, I think it was Shevchenko. <laughs> yeah, and you didn't rate him. you didn't rate him. Oh, we rated him, but we did it was a million quid, I think. We didn't have a million pounds. What happened? There was a yeah, someone came and said we can get any of the players from Ukraine. I mean, there were no foreign players, and we had these two boy, these two young players over, and we played against they played against Barnet Reserves. We couldn't get a game. And John Steele, the manager who a legendary non-league manager, John Steele, managed Dagenham and Redbridge for years and he managed Barnet and Maidstone and Dartford. John was, for me, one of the greatest, if not the greatest non-league manager. Uh, John brought Barnet Reserves down to play uh, so he could see this, these two kids, these two young players play. Anyway, he got back, I think he scored three goals, but it was a million pound and like we're like, yeah, don't speak English, you know, and we didn't do anything. We left it and... But yeah, I'm sure, I'm as sure as I can be with Shevchenko. <laughs> oh, wow. One of the players you did sign in these kind of in the mid '90s was Florin Radichoyu. Yeah, and the, on paper he was a great signing. Oh right? my god, he was the golden boot in the World Cup. He was yeah. the star of that World um, Cup. Yeah. How did you get him? How did we get him? I wish we never. I mean, it was like <laughs> he. Uh, do you know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of the centre forward at um, at Chelsea, Werner. Werner, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't know. Listen, I don't. I hope I'm wrong for Werner's sake, but he reminds <laughs> me of Werner. He's, yeah. You know that quick, make them darting runs. Not sure he fancied the physical side, but I'm not sure about Werner liking the physical side of our game. I don't know whether he. I don't know whether he's. You know, he's. he's, he's he, he, it looks a bit physical for him to me. And yeah. and, and he was the same. Florian Radichai, you know. But that Romanian group, um, suddenly they went out, you know, that things opened up in Romania and Ili Ili Dumatrescu, Papescu, Dan Petrescu, the right back at Chelsea was a great player. They suddenly started, I mean, the best player was Hadji. That was an amazing group of um of Romanian players, wasn't it? Yeah, Popescu, yeah. yeah. It, it, it feels but, at ti- it feels at times like you're you're more social worker than football manager in the nineties, aren't you? Like you're just you're dealing with all these problems of these personalities. Yeah, but with no help. 
With no help, you know, yeah. you really had no help in terms of like now, as I say, they've all got players. I remember, I remember, you know, um, signing Paolo Futre. I mean, Paolo Futre was one of the greatest footballers in the world ever. You know, I think Ron Atkinson did his top 10 players of all time. He had Futre in it. I mean, he played, he managed him at Atletico Madrid. But I remember him saying to me at Milan, he said, if you have a problem, you have people, they come out they from the club, you know, oh, we have a problem, no heating in the house. The house is someone, they will send some, they have somebody who contacts somebody, the television doesn't work. This is wrong, we, we need some help. Here, you come to England, you have, you're on your own, no one to help. And he, I thought, how did they get somebody to help them? What they mean? Like, you know, that was a player liaison officer, if you like, <laughs> you know, that came later on. But in them days, you had nothing. You just dumped them in a house and let them get on with it. How did they get money out the bank? How did they do this? How they, they had no idea. Half of them don't speak English. They come here and you leave them to their own devices. I mean, it was incredible, really. The first influx of foreign players that came really got no support system. Yeah. yeah. But alongside that, we touched on it at the start, but the academy starts producing unbelievable players. The late 90s, Joe Cole, Rio, Frank, we mentioned Michael Carrick, Jermaine Defoe. Yeah. I mean, what was it like as a coach when you're just seeing that amount of that talent? Oh, it was fantastic. I went to every, I used to, Saturday mornings when we were at home, I'd get to Chadwellief nice and early, watch the first half and 15 minutes of the second half, and then I'd jump in my car and Frank Senior, and we'd, he'd dash, we'd dash to Upton Park for the game. We'd get there for like uh, up past 12, quarter past, you know, whatever, you know, up past 12 probably. The kids kicked off at 11, we'd watch the third, you know, and then we'd, we'd, we'd watch 15 minutes, second half. Every youth game, wherever they played, I'd be in all over the country watching them. Went to Oldham, went to Everton, went to, we went everywhere to watch them play. Um, you know, because I'd, I'd been brought up like that. You know, it, for me, it was all about the youth team at West Ham. It was all about producing kids. When I went back to the club, we had no kids. They hadn't produced a player probably for 11 or 12 years. Probably Potts, Stevie Potts, Paul Lintz, Tony Cotty. That was probably the last group who had real, you know, maybe had other players, played a few games here and a few games there. But from being a club that just had a whole team when I was there as a player, every player came through the youth team. Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, Martin Peters, you know. They bought Billy Bonzi, but that was rare from Charlton but Frank Lampard, Trevor Brooking, everybody came out of the youth team. It was just a conveyor belt of footballers, you know, the team that won the, you know, the Jackie Burkitts and the Eddie Bobbingtons and, you know, the Brian Deers. Everybody came out of the youth team. And then suddenly we're not had a player for 11 years and that was the first thing I really tried to address. We've got to start producing. How do we get players? So we played Cholton youth team, uh, sorry, Cholton under 13s, under 12s, it might have been at Chabalief. I'm watching the game. Uh, and they beat us 5 0, Cholton. I said, How can Cholton beat West Ham 5 0? It's impossible. How can they have better kids than West Ham? There's no comparison between the two clubs. They said, I said, Who gets their kids? He said, Where's well, a fellow over there? He's over there. Jimmy Hampson, his name is. Right. So I go over to him in the tea room. I said, How are you doing? Jimmy, you all right? Yeah, I said, Harry, hello, Harry. I said, uh, you've done well here. You've got some good kids here, haven't you? He went, yeah, we've got Lee Hodges, England school boy, got this dead England school. How'd you get them? How can't we get them? How'd you do so well? I said, uh, you don't fancy coming here, working here, do you, West Ham? He pulled his sleeve up, got hammers <laughs> on his arm, right? <laughs> he went, it's my team. 
He said, I'm West Ham. So I'm up the road, come up the road, Silvertown. Do you really? I said, would you think, yeah, yeah, I'd love to work here. So we, we nick him. He brings little Lee Hodges with him, who's an England schoolboy. He brings Jermaine Defoe with him, who's a fantastic talent. And Jimmy suddenly got grafted. And um, that, that was it, really. We get Joe, we get Michael, you know, we, he's got scouts and Jimmy Tindall and that would work with him. And he brought people into work. Um, and, and we just, we got Joe at 11. I mean, Joe's first game, I'll never forget it. it Joe's, we've got a game against Norwich. Uh, in the afternoon, the first team were trained in the morning. It was pouring with rain. The pitches were muddy like you'd never seen at Chapel. So we're walking out to watch your, watch your game. We're playing Norwich under 13s. And uh, me, Frank Lampard, Peter Braybrook was there. Bless him. Alan Seeley as well. You know, two absolute legends of West Ham. They were there. So we walk, go walking across. We're still on a touchline. It's raining. It's muddy. There's this little kid playing there. Suddenly, he starts doing things I've never seen in my life, right? We went, who's that? Who's he? Who's, this, who's that kid? He went, his name's Joe Cole. He's from his little area, you know? Oh, my God. Hey. He went, he's two years younger than the other kids. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> he went, yeah. But Peter Braybrook was there, and Peter... Peter said, we won't get him, Harry. He said, I walked out behind his dad. He said, he's over there, his old man. He said, with a couple of his mates. And he went, no, he ain't coming here. West Ham, is he? He said, he'd go to Arsenal or Chelsea or somewhere, you know. Oh, no, really. Anyway, that was Joe. He's flicked the ball over his head, I swear. He flicked the ball over his head and over that defender's head and gone, caught it the other side and took the ball away. As he's run with it, I've never seen anyone do it on a football pitch before. He's spinning on balls and he's beating three or four players uh, on a mazy dribble, you know? Anyway, that was the start. Now we want to... So for the next four years, I used to go and watch him play Sunday mornings. Joe would play. We'd play Arsenal. If Joe was playing, we'd beat him. He'd beat him on his own. He'd, he'd score two or three goals. We'd been 3-1. Joe would just go through, bang, back of the net. Suddenly, his dad, who was a lovely, lovely guy, George, a rough diamond, but an absolute proper bloke, right? But you didn't mess with George Cole. Like, he was the same name as... Yeah, Minder. <laughs> but George, George, George was a proper bloke, you know, and he was a, a good bloke. Uh, and he said, Harry, he's going to Man United for, uh, for a week, spend a week up at Man United. Uh, Alex Ferguson uh, been in touch, you know. Yeah, no problem, George. I knew that if I'd have said to George, no, he can't go, George, is it he belongs to us or he's here, he'd have gone, bomb, and that's you done. He, so we had to play the game, you know. He's going on the coach with Man United to the cup final. Uh, Alex Ferguson sent him a shirt here with not Cole, number 10. He had a Man United shirt. He's going to Man United. Uh, he's going to Arsenal, trained at Arsenal for four, three or four days in the holidays, you know. Yeah, all right, George. But you know, we want him here. We love him. This is where he belongs. Now, he loves it here. He's at the Harry. He gets all, he loves it. He loves all everybody. He loves Peter Braybrook, Tony Carr. He's happy here, you know. But he's going to go and have a little look around. He's going there for a few, five, four or five days. And yeah, no problem, George. And that's how it was. We had to play the, you know, even when he signed schoolboy forms, really, we could have reported other clubs, Man United, you shouldn't be ringing him up. Like, but it, it would have caused a problem that would have been, and we'd have lost him. So we had to go with, we had to go with whatever George wanted and Joe, we went with it. 
and, and George was fantastic, great guy. And Joe was just a genius, the best schoolboy football I've ever seen. Um, so, and in the end, he left school and he came to West Ham. Did the other teams uh, try and sign uh, him? Did he choose you over the other teams or did they? Everybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, he'd go to old, I mean, he's, he's gone on a coach to the cup final with Man United. Oh, I mean, he's got a shirt, number 10, Cole on it, you know. Alex Ferguson give it to him, you know. Bloody I mean, hell. it was like everyone, what Liverpool, everybody was just, he was the best player in England, schoolboy, by a, a million miles. There was no one in his, anywhere near him. And it's every club in England offering him, offering him whatever. Uh, but he stayed with us and he liked it at West Ham. He felt comfortable. We all loved him. Uh, and he, he, came to, he came to West Ham. And his dad was, George was brilliant to deal with. You know, unfortunately, George passed away a couple of years ago, very young and a big loss, you know. But um, yeah, George was great. But I didn't want to, he wouldn't cross George. Yeah, he was a say he was a proper bloke, and if you'd have said to him, "No, he's not going to Man United, George. He's signed schoolboy forms. I'm going to report Alex Ferguson for making a legal approach or something," he'd have gone, "Oh, really? Okay, see you later." Last time we saw him, <laughs> that would have been the end yeah. of that. So that was how that's how we did it. I'd say the big turning point for West Ham in the late nineties when we kind of we were always kind of battling relegation a bit, but then you signed Hartson and Kitson, and that's. Yeah. The academy come through, the rocket ship began, but what a pair of signings they were. It changed the game. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to, um, just, you know, to speak to, to Terry Brown. I said, look, Terry, I can't keep you up, mate. We can't score a goal. We went one nil down, that was the end of the game. Trevor Morley was a good player. We had Trevor Morley or whoever we had, but we couldn't score. We had Ian Dowie, you know. They were, they were good lads, but they weren't scoring, you know, didn't score. They worked their socks off for the team. We just couldn't score a goal. I uh, said, so there's no way up, you know, we can blow the football, we just can't score. I and mean, unless we get someone in, and, and Terry was, he was good as goal, to be fair, he let me go and get uh, John Hartson and Paul Kitson, and they hit it off straight away. I mean, they were an amazing partnership. And suddenly we beat Chelsea, we beat Tottenham. We went on a run. I mean, Big John battered everybody. I mean, I remember being in the, ra- in the car, going to the game, and I've got the radio on, and Danny Baker was on, West Ham has signed John Artson. What a donkey. What a donkey. Go there and make donkey noises today. What a waste of money. Useless. And that was big. And John came and, oh my God, he was so aggressive. He was, and Paul Kitson could play. He was sharp, made great runs, good finisher. The pair of them were, yeah, together they were just fantastic. One of the kind of iconic players of the 90s for you was Paolo Di Canio, though, who must have been. That must have been thrilling to manage Paolo Di Canio. It was. I mean, it was a bold move. He'd pushed a referee over and I just loved it. I used to watch him play for Celtic on TV and it was like a little kid in school. He'd run, he'd take the corner, he'd take the throw in, he'd put, take the free kick. He's just, everywhere the ball was, he was running around getting the ball, you know, like this best kid in the playground. Uh, and so suddenly he's at Sheffield Wednesday, he pushed a referee over. He's bang, going to be bang or... I said, can we get him? Can we get I love him. So I said to Terry, he come back from the band. I said to Terry Brown, I want to sign, I want to sign a player, Terry. Yeah, we need another forward area. Yeah, be good. Yeah, no problem. Who you got in mind? I said, Paolo Di Canio. He went, no, no, anybody but him. Anybody but him. He said, we can't have him, Harry, please. He's pushed the referee over. He's a nutcase. But I said, Terry, he's a fantastic player. He's a talent. I said, he's a genius, you know. 
anyway, fair, fair dues to Terry. He backed me and let me bring him in. And I mean, watch a footballer. Oh my God, he was he was a genius. He was a fit. He used to come to me, but he, he was in such amazing nick. You know, his body was like he had a waist about must have been about twenty seven inch waist or something ridiculous. And he his body was in such incredible condition. He didn't drink. He ate only the right foods. He'd come in Sunday morning. He had his own fitness coach and he'd come and spend two hours of him stretching, doing different movements. And he was just incredible. And he used to come to me in the morning sometime. Hey, boss, we are warming up. Raise a ruddock. Oh, last night I had 14 points. I had four kebabs. And we are supposed to be professional. And he is there telling everybody, <laughs> oh, I'm drinking pints a bit. You have to speak with him, boss. Yeah, don't worry, pal. I sort him out. I sort Razor out. Leave it with me, pal. Yeah, you know. I never sorted Razor out, really. No one could sort Razor out. I love, <laughs> I love Razor, by the way. What a character. I love Razor Rudder. But Paolo was amazing. Amazing football, amazing ability. And just, he was a genius. Yeah. Were you, was he, you the manager of him when he caught the ball, when he could have scored that goal? Yes, yeah, of course, yeah. I wanted to kill him that day. I mean, <laughs> Stuart Pierce came thundering up the steps. I can see him there running in a dressing room at Goodison Park. Gaffer, he said, don't let me get near him, I'll rip his head off. <laughs> you know, I went. Uh, you are. I had to go on TV. Suddenly, we're waiting for Parlo. He still ain't coming to the dressing room. TV now, because the game got delayed because the injury to the goalie, they've dragged me out onto the TV, haven't they? And I've got to go out and say, "Oh, they said you must be so proud of Parlo Canio. I wanted to kill him, really. We, we needed <laughs> the points, you know. And I'm going, yeah, oh, amazing, yeah, yeah. We had, we gave him a a special. He won the Sportsman of the Year award. And I present it with Martin <laughs> Kemp out of Spandau Ballet. He's Spandau Ballet crazy, Carlo, right? Is he? Yeah, oh, Spandau <laughs> Ballet. He went there. They went to Rome or somewhere, right? And did two, or somewhere in Italy, did two concerts. First night, he said, when he when uh, Martin Kemp came and presented him with the, uh, the award, he told, when you came to Rome, I think it was somewhere, I think it was Rome. I had a ticket. My mum, we saved the money. I came out, I went to the... And you did two nights. You did second night. I didn't have a ticket. I was climbing over the wall, and the policemen are hitting me on the back with their truncheons. <laughs> I got over the wall. He said, "I came in two nights. Uh, I love Spandau Ballet. So uh, yeah, and he won an award, you know. And, oh. But really, we all wanted to kill him. All the players were yeah. catching the ball. Yeah, you were never afraid. Like you mentioned, Stuart Pearce. There, you were never afraid of signing a big character. Like you signed Stuart Pearce, you brought Ian Wright in, Neil Ruddock. You mentioned, I think Davos Souk as well. You were never afraid of bringing in those big characters into the dressing room. No, I love them. I love characters. You know, Wrighty, what a character, Ian Wright. I mean, just a manager, Ian Wright. You know, was he was fantastic, Wrighty. You know, but no, they were, they were, they were, yeah, good lads, big, big players, big characters. Um, I mean, it's a wild dressing room there. Johnny Monk, uh, what a, you know, John was a good player. What a good lad he was, Monks. And they were they were a bit of a wild bunch, I must be honest with you. You know, they took a bit of control in, but uh, Dixie, Monk, uh, Martin Allen, you know, Mad Dog, he was another good lad, you know, but they, they were characters and uh, they, I think they enjoyed Don Hutchinson. It, it felt, as a West Ham fan there, looking back, it probably all went wrong when we sold Rio. Is that your kind of assessment? Yeah, we had them kids and, uh, you know, the future was amazing. And then suddenly we sold Rio. What had happened, the Bosman ruling came in and Terry Brown at the time felt there would be no more big transfers. 
he felt the, the transfer, the days of selling players was over. The new ruling meant that players would just run their contracts out and move around free. Yeah. And that was that's how he saw it going because the Bosman ruling, you could just sign a shorter contract, have two, three years. And he felt 18 million for Rio. I mean, the I, I, ironic thing, you know, with Rio, quick story, I loaned Rio out to Bournemouth. Mel Machin is my, was my friend. I played with Mel. Mel was a manager of Bournemouth with Sean O'Driscoll, the assistant. And he rang me up, Mel, and he said, Harry, we're, we're going to get relegated. You know, we're struggling badly. Uh, could you loan us? Uh, got anyone? And I said, yeah, I've got a young centre-half that you can have. I'd do him good, get him out on loan. And it was Rio. So he went to Bournemouth to play. I got a phone call on a Monday from Mel Machin. He said, Harry, I've just had Martin Edwards on the phone, the chairman of Man United, asking us if we'd sell Rio. He said, and I said to him, we don't belong to us. What had happened? I think they'd played Stockport County or Rochdale on the Saturday. Uh, Man United were playing on the Sunday and Martin Edwards had gone to watch the game and he was pals with a chairman at Stockport and he'd gone along to watch a game near where he lived somewhere in Manchester area and seen Rio play for Bournemouth. And he thought, my God, who's this? He rang Mel Machin and said, would you sell him? And Mel said, no, he belongs to West Ham. He got, and he was choked, Martin Edwards. He thought he was going to nick him off a of Bournemouth. So he said, I've given him your number, Harry. He's going to ring you. So Martin Edwards rings me. So Harry, Martin Edwards. Hello, Mr. Edwards. You know, I was a young manager. And he said, uh, would you sell the boy Ferdinand? I said, no, he's not the sell, Mr. Edwards. I said, he said, I thought he belonged to Bournemouth. I didn't realise he was on loan from you. I said, yeah. yeah. He said, would you sell him? I said, no. It's not for sale. He said, would you take a million pounds? I said, you couldn't, he's not, no, no money in the world could buy him. I said, he's going to be the best centre-half in Europe one day. I said, he's fantastic. Uh, I said, we could sit here talking all day and he's just not for sale. There's no, no money can buy him. Okay. All right. Okay. It was, a, and it was amazing that years later, they paid 32 million pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but he went to Leeds in between and we, we, I remember having him in the dressing room, me and Frank Lampard and telling him not to go, don't go, don't go to Leeds. We knew that, you know, the chairman's going to, he wanted to sell him. He wanted the £18 million pound at the time. But we, we had him in Rio, don't go to Leeds. It's not a move for you. You know, listen, give it another year. Give it two years here. You know, and if it ain't whatever, eventually you'll move. Don't. I think he was being pushed into the move by his agent, who was obviously, you know, it was a good move for him or whatever. And, then, and, um, and, uh, and he was a great lad, Rio. And I think at the time he probably was you know, under pressure from the agent or whoever. And, and he went to Leeds. And what that was you, the beginning, really, yeah. What do you think that team could have achieved if you'd kept it together? Oh, I mean, well, you've got six kids straight away that all won Premier League titles, or not all of them, you know, five of them probably did. I think probably Jermaine Defoe won the least of them all, didn't he? Probably. Yeah, probably he's won, yeah. You know, he's now won a title in Scotland and whatever, but... You know, what a player he was. I mean, incredible, Jermaine, you know. But they all won everything there was to win in the game. So you've got six players here to start with. You didn't have to be very clever to find five other decent ones to go with them. <laughs> you'd, you'd have, yeah, they'd have, been, they'd have been incredible. Yeah. It could have been great times, you know. But I think Terry saw, Terry Brown saw the end of transfers with the Bosman ruling coming in and decided 18 million, you know, it was... And then, obviously, when me and Frank Sr. Uh, lost our jobs... Um, they sold Frank straight away. Yeah. It was a great era. It was. And I think 
it came to like you you leaving came down to an interview you did in a fanzine, isn't that right? Where you, you kind of said we could have spent the Rio money better or words to that effect. Uh, no, I just I, I was I think my language was a bit near the mark, and uh, <laughs> and I was giving Terry Brown some almighty stick. I didn't. I, I was talking to him like you know talking to the fanzine guy like I was talking to a mate in the pub or something, you know, and uh, he printed it word for word and. Uh, uh, Terry wasn't best pleased, and I could understand that. Really, looking back on it, you know, I did have I did have an habit of falling out with chairman. You know, <laughs> I, I I was murder. I mean, I, I'd go in a board meeting, and someone would say something about the team or about a player, and I'd slaughter them. I mean, I used to jump straight down their throat, and it's it really wasn't. You know, looking back on it, it wasn't how uh, you should behave. Yeah. It was, but. It but got you me. so far. You were the best. Well, Skull, surely your favourite West Ham manager ever, yeah? Oh, man. Look, how many good times no, you had in the late I mean, 90s, listen, that team? Man, it had some great managers. Ron Greenwood would be a... He was just incredible, Ron Greenwood. What a football man. John Lyle. They've had, they, they, and back, back in them days, though, you managed a club for, you know, 20-odd years. You know, Ron Greenwood was like 20. But, you know, you learned so much off of him. The most important for me was, like, with the kids... You know, be there. You know, you want to get the best kids in. You've got to show the parents. Turn up and watch the youth team. Parents see that. They know that you're interested in producing players. You know, after clubs, the managers don't even... I know managers now, top, top, top managers, who when they finish training, they walk straight past the pitch where the kids are trained, don't even look at the kids. They wouldn't go and watch a youth game. Alex Ferguson was at every game at Old Trap, at Man United. He knew every kid like I did. He would be there and he would. He was... That's how he worked to run the club, and that's what I did as well. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And, uh, we, we haven't even talked about the fact I've only ever seen West Ham lift one trophy, the Intertoto Cup in 99. The Intertoto Cup. What? Yeah. Good what day. A it was a good day. Yeah, we enjoyed that. It was good fun. But uh, no, they've done well now. I think David Moyes has done a great job this year with them, and uh, hopefully uh, they can. Uh, we're not going to finish in the top four. You know, it's, it's, it's too far now. I can't see the 10 points or whatever behind Leicester or a third. Uh, Chelsea, they can still do it. It's not impossible. But, uh, you know, if they get back into Europe in some, you know, UEFA Cup will be a big, uh, will be nice to get them in Europe. Fans back in the stadiums would be great. Chris, you always like to end with the same question. So, so we always end with one last question. If you could go back to the 1st of January, 1990 and live, live it all again that decade, it does, having chatted to you, it sounds quite stressful. A lot of personalities to deal with. But would you go back to the 1st of January, 1990 and live it all again? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> God, my God. What would I give to be that age again? Yeah. Yeah. 30 years younger. Can yeah. we make Sandra 30 years younger? <laughs> I'll start chasing around the bedroom again. <laughs> No, they were great days, great days, fantastic time. And no, I was lucky. But as I said, I grew up at West Ham and that, the boys, you know, we, do you know one silly story? We used to play Sunday mornings. We used to meet over Hainault Golf Course. There was an area, not on the golf course, by the, the car park that was beautiful bit. And we used to go there, Bobby, Frank, all the boys, we'd put the coats down. We'd have about half a dozen mates. We used to play football for an hour and a half oh, and then wow. go around the retreat pub and have a drink. <laughs> that was in the summer. So then too many people started getting it. Got a bit, so then we got hold of the, front, the, the training ground. And so they'd open the training ground. It was maybe a Tuesday night, a Wednesday night. We said Wednesday night, we'd all go, we'd turn up. Now it's just the, the off season, 10 weeks, we used to have long periods in them days. 
you turn up and we'd go there, get, go out and play football, all with their mates. Bring Terry Creasy, who was a, Terry's a character, they sells a few tips, used to sell Frankie McDonald, all the boys. And we'd play and then we'd all go around the boozer at Black Lion from there oh, wow. and have a drink. We'd all be, but that was, we were like kids. We was all West Ham, all, all local boys. And we had more fun that hour and a half. We'd play rages and like the games would be proper. And we'd just, you know, put the coats down or whatever on the, on the, and then we'd say we'd all end up around the pub, around the Black Lion oh, in Plaster having a drink. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you know what, Harry? This interview's done. It's it's the impossible. It's made me like West Ham. I never thought I'd see it. <laughs> Who is your team? Plymouth. We, oh, we ended, brilliant. Of course, yeah. We ended What's up with Lee Hodges. Plymouth this year. We've done all right. We went up and now we're... No, you started so well yeah. this year. We started yeah, yeah, well. You got, promoted, you got promoted last year, which was great. Back in back in Division 1, uh, they were consolidated, but they started the year so well. They were good home form, but they had to keep getting beat at home. But, um, no, Plymouth's a club with real potential. Yes. Do you know what's funny? I had a guy yesterday come on to me, a foreign guy who's got a lot of money, and I you want to buy a football club. And I said, do you know what's a good club? Now, they're probably not for sale. I said, Plymouth. Great potential, out on the limb a little bit where they are, but great potential. If they did, I remember just going down there with the Canio one night, he turned on a masterclass. Plymouth, yeah. we played Plymouth in a friendly pre-season. Yeah. Because we used to, every year, we used to go down I was to at that, I think. Mansell's Hotel yeah. in, um, in Devon. Yeah. Um, <coughs> oh, what was it called? The hotel. Anyway, we'd stay there and we'd play Plymouth, Torquay and Exeter or someone, you know? Yeah, we used to get loads of teams come down pre-season. we'd come down and play Plymouth. And Decanio turned it on one night at Plymouth. It was fantastic. But a real club with, you know, real potential Plymouth. Oh, well, do you know what, Harry? When the, when the foreign investor buys them, uh, we'll install you as manager, yeah? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> it's not that far from Sandbanks, is it? Only about four hours. <laughs> 98 miles, exactly the same as Oxford. 98, is that all? No, that no, it's good? not. <laughs> oh, thank you, Harry. It's been an absolute right, pleasure. Cheers. Thank I am going to say it. There's something about managers who make you, you just go, God, I'd love to play for that person. I know. He's, he is, um, he's got so much charisma, hasn't he? And yeah. also such a fantastic memory. Like the recall, yeah. how much stuff is in his head. I, it Man. blew my mind. He can remember friendlies, people playing well, names of people, where he was. Incredibly recall. I just love, like, when you listen to someone and you go, God, I wish I was there. I wish I'd been... I wish I'd been on the tour bus for Seattle Sounders in 1976. Do you know what I mean? Like, it would have been fun to be in the UK for the for punk in 1976. But it'd be better to have been playing in Seattle when yeah. they went, when they spent 12 days in Florida just playing between teams. Just, that Major League Soccer or whatever it was called in those times it was an absolute. It's a jolly, isn't it? It's a jolly. Yeah, it's an absolute jolly, and they deserve it, jolly. And I think a lot of people like have a go at players for like, oh, and then they go and they made a load of money playing somewhere. And you're like, I think if I got to the end of my career and someone said, do you want to do a well-paid jolly? I'd go fucking get it. When he was talking about some of those names and the places, you just think, this is one big stag do, isn't it? 
<laughs> like just going down to Florida, playing a few games with your mates, and you got the sunshine. It was brilliant. Um, I love yeah. Harry Redknapp. Um, he's just got it, hasn't he? Yeah, he's and just I, got it. I think you know. I said at the top, he's the pound for pound greatest manager of the nineties, and I think that because. You know that the, this if this podcast has taught us anything, the '90s game was so amateurish, and like like you say, player liaison bringing up, you had to negotiate as a manager so many different variables. Like the game's yeah. finding its feet and the money's coming in. And I think if you look at his achievements, he came from the bottom tier of English football to the top, like of the league yeah. system, and he did that because he's an enigmatic character, so much charisma, the, the scout, and he was able to find so many great players. And the other thing that really struck me was like, it sounds so like when you talk about all those players he signed it sounds really stressful but then you yeah. know you spoke to him at the end, like we said at the end would you go back he loved it he loved, yeah, it, loved it because he's such loved an optimistic it. positive person yeah and um, uh, what uh, a joy also can we focus on the fact while we have got a very good age owner at Argyle at the moment that he's just told a foreign foreign investor to buy Plymouth Argyle that was how he ended the uh, that's how he ended the interview Chris. That, that made your day well, no, because we're doing fine as it is. If he told me that three or four years ago. Um, but I genuinely think if you were to create a team, a 90s team, so it's not like um, Zidane, da, da, da. it was the team that defined the 90s. I think you'd have a very good argument to have Harry Redknapp as the manager. Yeah, absolutely. He'd be my pick. What a man. Yeah, well, we know that. <laughs> now, we always like to end with a quiz. Let's bring back starting 11, guys. Michael... It will be passed back to you soon, but I am going to just take it over this one more week because I do want to quiz you on the perfect game for you two. The final game of the season, West Ham versus Man U. Man U going for the title. One all. We remember this well? Yeah, all too well. Oh, yes. Yes. The rules are starting 11, as always. Uh, go again if it's a used sub. You don't get it if it's an unused sub. And... Uh, you each get one life before your second life kills you. Okay. Any player that played in Manchester United v West Ham. Chris, to start. Ludic McClosco. Correct. Michael. Um, the man who missed far too many chances that day, Andrew Cole. Yes. Paul Ince. Yes. Uh, Peter Schmeichel. Yes. Brian McClare, scorer yes. of the goal. Were you at this, Chris? I was at this game, yes. Oh, a bit of an advantage. <laughs> um. I would actually say, of all the games in the 90s, I should do best on this one. It's really burned into my memory, this game. And if ever it's on, I'll watch it again. I, I'd say if I had to give you any tactical tips, it would be... If you can get rid of all the man use, Michael's going to be Well, that's my tactics. Yeah. You've yeah. read me like yeah. a book. <laughs> <laughs> I went early with McCloskey and I was like, what am I doing? Why am I just burning through yeah. the gold here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve Bruce. Correct. I can see Gary Pallister in that defence that day. Yes, you can. Correct. Um, Dennis Irwin. Correct. I'm sure I can see a, a flustered Mark Hughes in my mind's eye. You'll need to go again. He came on at, at, at 46 minutes. That was a real lifeline for um, me there. Um, there's one, there's one that I'm... Oh, Gary Neville. Correct. So to re recap, you've had the four defenders, the goalie, Andy Cole and Brian McClare, and Paul Ince. Um, Paul Ince. Um, uh, Roy Keane. Correct. 
There's two menus left. It's and ten say, West Ham's. I, I, I think okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna gamble here knowing that I've got a lot of West Ham on my sleeve. I'm gonna get I'm sure Lee Sharp played. Correct. Yeah, I thought he did as well. Damn it. Um, Paul Scholes. Oh yeah. He came on for Roy Keane. Yeah, he did. Come oh, on. Uh, okay, so I go again. Yeah. Then it has to be Nicky Butt. It is Nicky Butt. Oh. So we move on to the West Ham. I've got to be confident of this one because it's quite a weird West Ham team at this point. There's a lot of people yeah, there's around. A lot of, there's, there's a, a lot, lot of, of dog shit in this. It's team. a lot of dog shit. I don't believe you would have heard of. Uh, um. So let, let's start with um, Ian Bishop. Correct. Okay, that's good. I wouldn't have got him anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm basically just ballparking West Ham players at this stage. Yeah, I have you, no confidence of when they team, play for the Michael, club. This would be one of the great um, upsets if you turn this yeah. round. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I've got two, and and a reach. That's that's all I've got in my chamber. So. Don Hutchinson. Correct. I, oh. I don't remember him playing. I don't remember us playing in a striker. Um, Trevor Morley. Correct. Yeah, I mean, you could have told me he played in the 80s and I would have believed you. <laughs> um, I probably did, didn't I? <laughs> um, John Moncur. Ah. Correct. Oh, my word, he's still fighting. No, I mean, I've got loads. I know Michael Hughes played. Michael Hughes scored the goal. There we go, Michael Hughes. Yeah, back to Michael. Flailing away. It's but it's wonderful when you see like still still going. This is how Tiger Woods must feel when you just know you've got it in your locker. It's just a case of <laughs> <laughs> just a case of holding your nerve. Okay, I, I only know this player exists because of um, Big Tom D. So I'm going to say. Tim Breaker. Correct. Oh, this is <laughs> astonishing. Um, a slight sheen of sweat appears on Skull's brow. Uh, Mark Reaper. Correct. Um, what? Can you give me a recap on who's gone from West Ham? Yeah, Ludic McCloskey. Yeah. Tim Breaker, Mark Reaper. So there's two defenders to go. Yeah. Ian Bishop, John. Ian Bishop, John Hutchinson. And John Moncur, Michael Hughes, and Trevor Morley. So there's two midfielders. No, no, one midfielder and two yeah, defenders one. still to go. Uh, he's uh, he's not a defender, but he's he's not a midfielder, but or a defender. But the only player I can think of is Martin Allen. Michael, you haven't lost a life, but you are going to have to go again. He came on for Don Hutchinson. I'd always rather lose a life. <laughs> this is less stressful. Um, uh, You've done, just, you done well. I don't. Uh, uh, I'm just going to say Les Seeley because I don't, I, don't, I don't have any. I don't have any outfield players. He was on the bench, but luckily for you, he didn't come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, that's basically a pass. Yeah, Chris. Um, I think Alvin Martin would be in the heart of defence. You've lost a life as well. No way, astonishing. Have I? So, Michael, oh. Michael, if you can get this, Michael, oh. I was my legs had gone, and suddenly, twelfth <laughs> round, I've seen Adrian in the crowd. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, what was it? Sorry, a defender. Oh God, two defenders, one of whom I've never heard of. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Steve Potts. <laughs> He's got it. He's got yeah. it. <laughs> I'm astonished. It's astonishing. This is so absolutely schoolboys' own stuff. Yeah. Do you know Harry what? Davis. I, I remembered Steve Potts and then forgot it, and then you said that. So this, and now I'm in danger. Yeah, and- Skull, if you get this wrong, the final West Ham player, then, who's the only player left available, then you have lost. Well, you said one of which you've never heard of. And I, and so, and I have, I've, you know, a lot of West Ham fans will be listening saying, why haven't you said Julian Dix? I think he was injured in this game. Yeah. And so, if there's two defenders left, you said one you've never heard of. Yeah. I think you would have heard of Steve Potts, which tells me it was Keith Rowland. Who played at left back that day? It was. Oh, <laughs> oh that is. Oh. I, I'm genuinely, my, my hands are sweating. It's, how it's, it's one of the great. So, who's it? What we got left in midfield? No, that's it. It's a draw. Oh, no. What? Wait. There's a midfielder, isn't there? There's a midfielder left. I mean, I, I have no idea. Oh, I don't right. even know where to begin. Is he Irish? I'm not going to say because Michael's still theoretically in the game. Um, yeah, yeah, Paolo De Canio. Oh, <laughs> was it? It's I not, think it might be Matthew Rush. No, it's not. But it's too late. Skull started. So Skull, you do win. But what a drama it was! It was Matty Holmes. Of course, it was Matty Holmes. Come Can on. I say if I could go back and change one result from the nineties? <laughs> <laughs> There we go. Thank you very much, guys. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. So we'll be back next week with more of that kind of stuff. Chris, anything left to say? Look, Harry Redknapp, iconic manager. For me, the greatest manager never get the England job. Favourite son of East London. I love him. Give me some of the happiest memories of my life. And do you know what? He did it his own way. Michael, can I have Frank Sinatra at my way for Harry? Brilliant. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more of the same. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. And now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did it my way Regrets, I've had a few But then again, too few to mention I did what I had to do Saw it through without exemption I planned each charted course Each careful step Along the byway 
more, much more than this, I did it my way. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.